I want you to think about the word together. Together. It's generally thought of as a positive word. I mean, we say things like, uh, let's go together, or let's do this together. Or, or we might say, let's be together. Or, you know, together we can do this. It's a positive term. But in practice, we often find ourselves resisting the idea of togetherness. I don't know what it is, but we, we find ourselves saying things like, I've got this. I can handle it. No thanks, I can do this on my own. Or, I'd rather be alone. <laughs> well, the 17th century English poet John Donne understood that life was meant to be lived together. I don't know if he was a believer or not, according to the biblical standard anyway. He definitely was raised Catholic and later joined the Church of England. But certainly this famous poem of his that I'm about to look at expresses the biblical idea, the biblical concept of the need for togetherness. Dunn wrote, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thy own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. No man is an island. I was trying to think of an illustration to, that, that really describes this concept of togetherness. And the story of Dick and Rick Hoyt came to mind. It has inspired millions. I'm certain most of you uh, have seen this. Uh, together, Dick and Rick Hoyt accomplished what neither of them ever could have or would have done alone. A Dick, who, by the way, died in 2021 uh, at the age of about 80, and his son Rick are from Massachusetts, and together they completed several athletic competitions, marathons, Ironman triathlons, and the like. But Rick, the son, has cerebral palsy. During the competitions, his dad Dick pulled him in a special boat as they would swim, carried him in a special seat in the front of the bicycle, and pushed him in a special wheelchair as they ran. Eventually, Team Hoyt was inducted into the Ironman Hall of Fame, and you may have seen the, uh, the ESPN special where they were uh, recipients of the Jimmy V Award. I want you to watch this short four-minute summary of uh, this uh, story.
There's not a better display of the church than when God's people are running together. And in our passage in Acts this morning, I invite you to turn to chapter 21 again. It's kind of a long chapter and lots of meat there that we're going to be camped out in at least for another couple of weeks. But there's a great illustration of how the Christian life needs to be run together. We're all in this together. You know, Paul in his writings, when he writes, for example, about running the race and uh, 1 Corinthians 9.24 or at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4.7, he's not talking about a solo jog through a mountain trail. He's talking about living life in community with other believers so that we can help them and they can help us. God's divine design is for the church to thrive, not survive. And we thrive by being together. With all that's going on in the world, I think believers need each other more than ever. And yet there is a tendency, especially because of the trials that are coming our way and already here, to, to flee, to, to run for isolation, to head for the mountaintops. But in our passage, we see an early example of a healthy church on display. This is a unique section of Acts where we're moving into the section where Paul goes to Jerusalem and ultimately uh, to Rome. And chapter 21, from where we are right now, all the way to chapter 23, verse 35, covers a span of 12 days. So as we go through this section in the coming weeks, it's just going to be kind of the same time frame, but some incredible things that happen. And, and we kick it off here with uh, verses 15 uh, to 25. The time frame is 57 A.D., so to put that in historical perspective, that's uh, 24 years after the birthday of the church. Um, it's specifically May 19th to 25th, that seven-day period, 57 A.D. And I'd like to read uh, these uh, verses just to kind of uh, set the stage for what we're going to talk about here in just a moment. Beginning in verse 15, uh, after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem, and also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manson of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we were to lodge. Manson is his name. And when they had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. That's James, the Lord's brother, by the way, that, who got saved after the resurrection. James, the disciple, was martyred in Acts chapter 12. And uh, Peter passes the torch here to James, the Lord's brother, who's now the leader of the Jerusalem church. Verse 19, when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, Paul, this false rumor, this false accusation. They've been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. 
Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they might shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing. In other words, you keep the law. You're sensitive to the Jewish customs. But that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided, this is going back to the Jerusalem Council, which we read about in chapter 15. Uh, James is just repeating here what they've already said. Uh, They should observe no such thing, except, of course, that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual uh, immorality. So I see the church very much on display, and it's a beautiful picture of togetherness in these uh, 11 verses. And I've kind of jotted down seven signs of a healthy church, by no means comprehensive. We get most of our ecclesiology not from the descriptions in the book of Acts, but from the prescriptions in the Pauline epistles. Uh, But still, these jump off the page at me as we kind of walk through this text. The first thing is a healthy church realizes the common bond among believers. You know, we have here, as we read, believers introducing believers to other believers. <laughs> and, you know, you've got this Manson, and essentially they're saying, you know, he's one of us, right? They'd never met Manson, but there was this instant connection with him. Why? Because he was one of them. He was a believer. He was born again. He was a Christian. He was part of the way. He was part of the club. And by the way, Luke tells us he had been a believer since the early days of the church. So he says he's an early disciple. So he probably got saved on the day of Pentecost. We can't say with certainty. The early is somewhat vague, but clearly this was not someone who'd just gotten saved on Paul's third missionary journey. This is a guy who trusted in Christ early on and has been growing in his faith. And now he comes together with Paul and Luke and the others on the par- in the party, and they have this common bond. See, there's something that we have between us that the world will never have unless a person becomes a believer. And that is this spiritual connection of the indwelling Holy Spirit. In his writings in 1 Corinthians, which Paul had already written by the time this is taking place, he wrote it not long earlier in, uh, from, uh, on his third missionary journey, but he says, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. And then he, he's making an analogy here with the physical body. He says, for in fact, the body is not one member, but many. But we are, in fact, one body made up of many members. And what ties us together is the bond of the Holy Spirit. This word bond is an interesting word. It's used only a few times in the New Testament. It's the uh, Greek word sundesmos. It means a binding or fastening that ties things together. So in my mind, when I read that definition, I pictured a zip tie. You know, zip ties are kind of like the new duct tape. I mean, you can use zip ties for just about anything to hold things together. And I'm picturing this type of fastener, this type of connection among Uh, believers. Here in Ephesians 4, he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there's this bond of peace. What is that peace? Well, in the scriptures, you see uh, three different kinds of peace. You see positional peace that comes only by faith in Christ. Romans 5, 1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So we, apart from Christ, we're at enmity with God, lost and on the road to hell. By placing our faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ, we have a perfect peace 
you know, a, a, a positional peace with Him. Then there's practical peace. Even though we are at peace with God, we don't always experience peace on earth. Sometimes we're struggling, we're discouraged, depressed, scared, whatever. And so we, we, we seek that peace. And Isaiah the prophet said, those who set their minds on God will find themselves at peace. Uh, if we pray, Paul says in Philippians, we will be kept in perfect peace. But then there's a third kind of peace, which is ultimately uh, the, the global peace, the peace on earth. There's peace with God, the peace of God that comes through prayer, and the peace on earth. Uh, that we won't experience till the Prince of Peace comes back uh, and rules and reigns in perfect righteousness. But here's a reference to this word sundesmos, this binding together. And it's because we all have that positional peace. No believer ever has to or should, although sometimes we do, we shouldn't, uh, have to worry about, am I going to heaven? Am I part of the family of God? Right? Of course we're a part of the family of God. In the sister uh, book that Paul wrote also from prison, Colossians, he says, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So there we see love kind of as a component of this uh, common uh, bond. In that same letter, earlier Paul says, holding fast to the head, Christ is indeed the head of the body. That's what really brings us all together is we have the same leader, the same Savior, but notice he says, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints. See that word joints there? That's the same word, sundesmos, meaning bond. And it's a medical <coughs> application of that term. <coughs> Excuse me, you see he says joints and ligaments. You know, the thing that binds our ligaments to our bones is, is kind of like what binds us together as believers, the unseen spirit. We have a common bond, and that's the reason someone they'd never met before, Manson, whom they, whom they knew, uh, who they never knew, but because he was a believer, who had been a believer a long time, they could instantly get along with, as if they'd known him for years. You ever experienced that? We, we see it time and time again. I've talked about this before in our journey through Acts, because it, it does come up. Uh, you know, traveling for ministry the way we have uh, for many years, 200, 250 days a year on the road, we, we run into believers all the time. And, uh, and it's just an instant connection. Suddenly you can talk about things that you can't talk about with a perfect stranger. You get on the elevator with someone who's a believer, maybe because they have some sweatshirt on with a Bible verse and it makes you think, oh, maybe they're a believer, maybe they're carrying a Bible, or maybe just they're talking you know, to, to someone else on the elevator and they talk about the Lord, somehow you, you get an indication perhaps they're one of us. And I love that because then I always go, oh, are, are you guys believers? Or it sounds like you guys are believers, you know. Or are you here for the conference? A lot of times I'm at a hotel where there's all kinds of people, but a good number of them are there for a conference in one of the big conference rooms. I'll say, oh, you're here for the conference? Yeah. And then instantly it's like we've known each other for years, you know. And we just talk about things about the Lord. So that's the first sign of a healthy church is they realize the common bond that we have. Secondly, a healthy church rejoices in fellowship. There is joy in fellowship. When the body of Christ, the church, comes together, it's not usually a somber, sad, depressing occasion. You know, when you walked in here this morning, and I see this week after week, it's one of the many things I love about Plum Creek, uh, you probably noticed, as I did, smiles and laughter and joy. People are, oh, good to see you, hugging each other and smiling and talking. And there's, a, there's just a general sense of 
joy. And that's the sign of a healthy church. It rejoices in fellowship. Notice Luke tells us, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now look, I know there are some people that, you know, come over and you're like, oh, here they come again, right? There's some visitors that we, you know, wish their stay was short, right? When I was a kid, my dad used to have a funny saying where they, they would have people over to play bridge or just hang out or have dinner. And if they would overstay their welcome, my dad would always eventually get up and go, well, honey, talking to my mom, well, honey, we, we better go to bed so these folks can go home, you know? It's kind of a subtle way of saying, uh, time to go home, you know? But, uh, but when it comes to brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a joy there. We look forward to the fellowship, right? I mean, that's why I look forward to our, our church is unique. We have people that come from all over. Uh, some people come from an hour away, sometimes more. <laughs> and, uh, and we don't get to really see them except when we gather together as, as an assembly. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. This, this idea of joy, a healthy church rejoices in fellowship. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Paul talks about that joy in the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who ties us together as the common bond in our relationship in Christ is also the one who helps fill us with joy. Paul, when he prayed for the Colossians, he prayed that they might be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy. With joy. He told the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. So a healthy church uh, rejoices in fellowship. Number three, a healthy church reports testimonies of what God is doing. Because we know what it's all about. So there's, there's always the superficial conversations, you know, that we like. Because we have things in common. We like to talk about life, the weather. We like to talk about the 49ers. I mean, I don't, but... I know Steve does, and I love Steve, so I was happy that the 49ers won on Saturday, and I'm hoping he'll return the favor when the Cowboys win tomorrow night in their playoff game. And I'm sure he will, because he's much more gracious than I am. Uh, honestly, I, I have full, full disclosure and confession, I was rooting against the 49ers, not because I don't like them and like you, but I was hoping that they would lose, because if they lose and the Cowboys win, we would get a home playoff game. But anyway, uh, the Lord knows. So, uh, But... Beyond that type of casual, sort of everyday superficial conversation, which is normal, the a healthy church talks about the Lord. We want to know what's the Lord doing in your life? What's been going on spiritually in your life and ministry? And this is testimonies. And periodically here at Plum Creek, we have testimony time. I, I know not everybody likes to talk in front of uh, people, and it's, 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 you know, it's difficult for some people to be public speakers, but I want you to know at any time, if you have a, a, a burden or a word that you want to share with the body for mutual edification, you let us know. We don't have to have a testimony time to do that. The fact that we're together is testimony time. And we see this again and again in Acts. Whenever Paul returns from a mission trip, he gives a report. Or Peter and John telling the brethren about what was going on in their ministry. And we see it again uh, here, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present, the early church leaders. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done. He reports testimonies of what God is doing. And uh, if someone, you know, asks you, as we read in Peter, 
Hey, what's God doing in your life? You need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. This is not just an apologetics uh, passage here. That word defense there in Greek is apologia. It's where we get the word apologetics. So a lot of times people apply this, and they, and they should, to the context of sharing Christ with others, defending the faith, sharing the gospel. But it goes beyond that, you know. You need to think about what if someone asked you right now, hey, tell me about what God's doing in your life. Yeah. Tell me about what God's doing in the Hickson family or the Medlin family you know, or the Mays family right, or the Roberts family. I want to know. You, you should have an answer for that. And if you don't, it's a gentle reminder and rebuke to think, you know, I need to be contemplating God's hand of blessing in my life. I need to see God, how he's putting things together and, and working. Um, just a personal little anecdote from this past week. We left uh, Wednesday night after Bible study, Wendy and I did, to head to, uh, uh, to Oklahoma City for some ministry. And that day, Wednesday, was a very frustrating day for me because it was one of those days where all week I'd been kind of looking forward to Bible study. I was excited about it. I looking forward to what we were going to talk about. And then I knew that I got to go to Oklahoma City and be with some people that I was really looking forward to spending time with at Prophecy Watchers. And so I was just kind of kind of humming along. I doing all my tasks and Monday tasks, Tuesday tasks, Wednesday, and had some podcasts and some did some writing. And then all of a sudden about, I don't know, 3.30 or 3 o'clock on Wednesday, I went to pick up the rental car that we were using to go on this trip because they were paying for it and we didn't want to use, put the miles on our own car. Still had a good attitude, still thinking God is good. You know, of course, God's good all the time, but you know how you sometimes you're thinking, wow, God's really good. Get home to our place, and we had a lot of snow, a lot of ice, and only when I pulled up to the driveway did I realize the, four, the SUV they had rented me was not a four-wheel drive. I could not get up our driveway. It was just roll back down. I could not. It was just spinning out. So now I do the, the thing that every godly, mature, spiritually mature preacher does. I start to get mad. And I start going, great, now I'm going to have to haul all of our luggage all the way down the driveway. It's not going to, I've got a bum foot. It's just not going to be easy. And then I, then I start, I'm not taking this car. Forget it. I'm taking my car. It's a great car, four-wheel drive. I don't care if it puts the miles on it. I'm taking my car. So I storm into the house, walk up the hill and get into the house. I tell Wendy, you know, I'm not, I'm just, well, I'm not doing, I'm taking, taking my car. Then I go online to do one final check. Actually, I was actually looking for the number for the rental car place to just let them know. I was going to have the girls bring it back. And in the process, I checked the drive again. And what had been eight and a half hours was now nine hours and 50 minutes, almost 10 hours. Well, I wasn't thinking because I was flustered. I was frustrated. I wasn't thinking straight. That's because of a wreck because Google is real time. Um, and I thought, oh, I must have miscalculated it earlier, typed in the wrong thing. And I'm going, man, we can't leave Thursday morning and be there. We had a 6 o'clock appointment with dinner with the group. I don't want to leave at, you know, 5 in the morning. And I, so we better just leave tonight. So now Wendy's scrambling to come to Bible study. We were going to leave straight from here. I'm in a bad mood. I'm not being very pleasant. Uh, then as we're getting here, Wendy's checking it again. And she goes, uh, honey, it's actually only, you know, so it's, it's not, it's only eight and a half hours. It's not that. And well, what happened? Are you sure you're looking at it right? I mean, it had to be her mistake, right? And um, figured it all out, figured what I'd done. So then 
I get here and I'm late because in that two-wheel drive car, the roads were horrible getting up to 25 from where we live, and we just were behind. So as you guys were here Wednesday, no, I got here barely in enough time, was flustered, ended up messing up the live stream, and uh, it was just one of those. Then we leave, and it was snowing again all the way from really Denver all the way to Burlington snowy, icy, windy, and I'm trying to hold this car on the road. We were supposed to stay in Colby. We, I pulled off at Burlington and said, I'm not driving any further. This is just ridiculous. So still in a bad mood, wake up the next morning. It's bright and sunny. Everything from the border of Colorado eastward is perfectly fine. The car drove fine on a nice road with no snow. And the Lord put on my heart, you know what? What you just experienced yesterday from about 3 o'clock on was a spiritual attack. And by the way, you failed. <laughs> you know, it was, and it was. It was the devil trying to discourage. And I really believe, you know, it, we, we were blessed to, to not get in a wreck. Because, I mean, it was, it's hard when you're on icy roads with a not four-wheel drive car. So anyway, you know, it's, it's one of those things that the rest of the weekend now, when people said, you know, hey, how was your trip? I could bring the Lord into the conversation. And I could say, you know what? The Lord protected us. The Lord gently rebuked me because I had a bad attitude and wasn't paying attention to what was really going on from a spiritual perspective. I was seeing with earthly eyes. I was seeing cars and hills and ice and luggage and time clocks instead of seeing what's the Lord doing here. And I think this is a sign of not only a healthy believer but a healthy church that we come together and we talk about what's God doing in your life. Number four, a healthy church remembers to give God the glory. That's exactly what we see happen when they heard these testimonies. Who, what did they do? Did they say, oh, good for you. You're awesome. You're great. You're wonderful. I wish I was like you. No, they all glorified the Lord. And that's a sign of a healthy church, remembering what it's all about, remembering to give God the glory. Paul told Timothy in his little sort of benediction here, spontaneous outburst of praise now to the king eternal immortal invisible to god who alone is wise be glory be honor and glory forever and ever amen in philippians paul is praying like he did for the colossians now he's praying for the philippians and he records his prayer under the inspiration of the spirit and he says he's praying that they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by jesus christ to the glory and praise of god Everything we do as a believer and as a church ought to be to give God glory. Number five, a healthy church recognizes the centrality of faith. The centrality of faith. Now granted, this was 24 years into the church. We've got 2,000 years of baggage to overcome. And after 2,000 years of Satan blinding men's hearts to the gospel, the church today has largely lost sight of the importance of faith as the only means of obtaining eternal salvation. Uh, but we see this emphasized again and again through the book of Acts and in all of the epistles, how important the, the clarity of the gospel is, and it's all about faith. And a healthy church today never loses sight of that fact. A, a healthy church does not present a confusing gospel message like so many do today that talk about committing your life to Christ or giving your life to Christ or inviting Jesus into your heart or 
pledging something to Christ or being allegiant to Christ or, or somehow following Christ and that's how you get saved. None of those things are biblical when it comes to how you receive eternal life. More than 260 times, more than 160 times rather, the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone. It's simple. We don't give something to God to get saved. We have nothing to give. We're just dirty, rotten, filthy, dirty, rotten, filthy sinners. We have to come empty-handed to the cross so He can give us what we need. We're the receivers. He's the giver. We don't commit our lives to Christ. That's a discipleship issue. I hope as a believer, every one of us wakes up every day and says, Lord, I'm committing my life to you. I want to serve you today. But that's not how you get saved. Salvation is not a bilateral contract where we make a commitment and God says, okay, good, sign on the dotted line, and as long as you keep that commitment, you'll go to heaven. No, no, it's a unilateral gift. And so we see early on this uh, church, one more example here. Uh, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have invited Jesus into their heart. Is that what it says? We see how many myriad of Jews there are who have committed their lives to Christ. We see how many myriads of Jews there are who have given their hearts to Jesus. No. What did they do? They believed. They believed faith is the only means of justification. From Adam to the new heavens and new earth, every human being from Adam forward who wants to be declared righteous before a holy God does it by faith. By faith. Abraham believed God and was declared righteous. So they're rejoicing here about how many Jews two decades into the church are have gotten saved. Um, and uh, by the way, estimates of the population in Jerusalem at this time range between 30,000 and 50,000 Jews in that day. Uh, but the emphasis here was on those who had believed because they knew what Jesus had said during his earthly ministry. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. Quite simple. Nothing complicated about that. Paul says in Romans, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace as debt. So how many of you believe the Bible teaches we have to be saved by grace, that grace is the gift of God of salvation? Of course. Well, listen, if you're working to try to gain salvation, that's not grace. That's just increasing the debt. He goes on, but to him who does not work, but what? Believes, there's that word again, on him who justifies the ungodly, then his faith is accounted for righteousness or credited as righteousness. Later on, he says in Romans 11, if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. So you can pick. You can try to work your way into heaven. That'll never happen. Or you can recognize that it's not by works and trust in Christ alone. In Galatians, Paul's first letter, he says, we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is the noun form of belief, pistis. Uh, believe is the verb form, pistuo in Greek. And uh, it's the same idea. Uh, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Why? Because by the works of the law, nobody can ever be justified. The sixth sign of a healthy church is that the healthy church remains alert for enemy attacks. You can mark it down. The enemy is always going to attack when the gospel is going forth. And the gospel was proliferating exponentially in the early days of the church. Myriads, they described it as, were getting saved. 
And so Satan attacked. And, uh, and, and the, this church was alert for it. Notice that, speaking again of these Jews who had gotten saved, uh, you know, we read that they had been informed about you, Paul. Somebody went in and poisoned the well about you. And Paul, they're teaching that, uh, that you're saying, they're saying that you're saying that all these Jews have to completely forsake their Jewish heritage and their Jewish custom, which is not at all what Paul was saying. It was a spurious lie. In fact, from this point to the rest of the book of Acts, all the way to the end of chapter 28, Paul repeatedly before various audiences defends the fact that he is a loyal Jew on a mission to the Gentiles. He is not anti-Jewish. All he's saying is that a Jew does not have to get circumcised to be saved. But Paul himself even took uh, uh, t uh, Titus and had him circumcised. Remember that? And so Paul respected the Mosaic Well, He just wanted to be clear to these Jews that you're, it's not going to give you eternal life. You can keep every jot and tittle of the law and you're no closer to being saved than you were before. But you need to trust in Christ. And then, yeah, if you're a Jew, sure. If you want to keep the customs and you want to circumcise your children, that's fine. There are times to do that, but not as a means of eternal life. So people had created this terrible lie about Paul that he was disrespectful to Jews, that he was telling them they, they should have no regard. Um, and so this put the Jerusalem elders, the, the leaders of the church, who were Jewish believers, the likes like James and so forth and Peter, in a bind. Because on the one hand, they certainly supported Paul's mission to the Gentiles, and they made that clear at the Jerusalem Council, uh, which was 50 AD, so about seven years earlier. But here they found that Paul was becoming persona non grata in the Jewish culture, and his mission was being discredited by all the common Jewish people uh, that they really wanted to reach. They want to reach everybody for the gospel, not just Jews, not just Gentiles, but everybody. And they didn't want Paul to be rejected. In fact, they were praising God for Paul's you know, successes in ministry. So what should they do? And so uh, we, we find out in the next uh, verses they have a plan. And they respond graciously. And they defend Paul because they were ready for these attacks. Remember what Jesus said when he told Peter that the church someday was going to be built upon the foundation that Christ is the, the Son of God. Uh, he says, I say to you, Peter, that you, you are correct, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. This has often been pointed out, but it bears repeating, that this is a defensive posture. Gates are. So the idea here is that we are to be on, the, uh, on a mission to do battle with the enemy. We're not supposed to circle a wagon, sit back, and sheepishly wait. We're to be storming the gates of hell. In the, in the Bible, gates always refer to fortifications, Old and New Testament alike. And Hades here is the place of the dead, basically uh, you know, the departed spirits, if you will. Uh, usually it refers to hell, but not always, but it's just the place of the dead. And so when he says the gates of Hades, between the concept of gates and Hades, he's talking about death. And he's talking about the powers of death and Satan and evil and Satan and his minions. 
who oppose life and are out to murder. Jesus has said in, in, in uh, John chapter 8 that Satan's a murderer from the beginning. And what he's saying is that agenda will not prevail over the church. In other words, the church cannot die. And so the, the healthy church is alert for enemy attacks and recognizes not just that we're supposed to be in a defensive posture, but Satan's on a defensive posture. Satan flees. Resist the devil. He will flee from you, right? Uh, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century was the late Harry Ironside. Uh, he's uh, pastored the Moody Church in Chicago for some almost uh, 40 years. And he said of this passage, an invading or besieging army does not carry the gates of its cities with it, <laughs> right? Again, gates are defensive. It is hell or Hades, the realm of darkness, that is being besieged or should be being besieged by the forces of light who are carrying on not a defensive but an offensive warfare. And to them this great promise is given by Jesus that the gates of hell shall not prevail. A healthy church remains alert for enemy attacks. A healthy church knows the devil walks about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's why Paul reminds us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There's an unseen enemy and an unseen battle in an unseen realm that we need to be aware of. And my last two books, the Spirit of the Antichrist series, are all about that reality because things are undoubtedly heating up on earth. We see that with the, the uh, doing away of our rights, with uh, the globalist movement, with everything that's happening, the gender surrender movement, the decline in morality, clearly things are heating up on earth. And whenever we see things heating up on earth, that means they're heating up in the heavenlies. This battle is raging, which I believe is a sign of the times. So in the early days, the church was ready. People were making false accusations about Paul. They were discrediting his ministry, and they were ready, and they had a plan. So what did they do? Well, they responded graciously, and that's the seventh sign of a healthy church. They responded graciously to con conflict. They needed to be strategic in defending grace. And sometimes those who defend grace can be ungracious about it. But they said, what should we do? Well, the assembly must certainly meet. Therefore, here's what we tell you to do. Uh, the elders plan aimed to prove to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and, and to all the Jews, in fact, that Paul had not abandoned the customs of the Jews. So we have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses, that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing. Uh, the four men in question had taken a vow, and they were obligated uh, with this temporary vow uh, to keep it. And, uh, you know, at the end of the vow, each of them was required to bring an offering to the temple, according to Numbers chapter 6. And so the elders, the Christian leaders in the Jewish uh, community said they should that Paul should go with them to the temple purify himself as they did and invite engage in worship and show his support for this custom by paying for their offerings and Paul could do this by the way without compromising his convictions because this wasn't in any stretch a means of eternal salvation it was a cultural thing and uh, so they go on and, and close it out with the last verse that we looked at. Concerning the Gentiles who believe, just to make sure, of course, that they know. Look, they don't have to do these things. These things are not essential for eternal life. And we've already addressed that uh, in the Jerusalem Council. They had already addressed that in the Jerusalem Council. So graciousness means being equally concerned about both sides of an issue. Uh, 
And in any church, uh, there are going to be disagreements. There are going to be challenges that we have to come up with a plan to overcome. Satan's going to attack sometimes. And we need to make sure that grace reigns supreme. It's one thing to champion grace and salvation, which we certainly do. But it's another thing to remember to be gracious in how we uh, handle conflict. So let's just review. A healthy church realizes the common bond we all have as believers. It rejoices in fellowship, reports testimonies of what God is doing when we come together. What's God doing in your life? It remembers to always give glory to God. He gets all the glory. It recognizes the centrality of faith when it comes to salvation and the Christian life, by the way. It always remains alert for enemy attacks and responds graciously to conflict. So the takeaway, as we go back to this idea of togetherness, is we need each other. And as we look around at this community of faith, this community of believers, let me challenge you not to run alone. It's tempting. I get it. Uh, I'm kind of that way. You know, there are things I'd rather just do myself, you know. But there's not a better display of the church being the church than when God's people run together. And as we transition into communion, the Lord's Supper, I think it's just perfect how the Lord worked out the timing that we have the Lord's Supper today. And, you know, by the way, we thought up until this morning we were going to have the Lord's Supper on the fifth Sunday, but we realized, no, we had scheduled it for today. So it's not like this was even on my mind as the Lord was giving me this message this week. But what perfect time to, to celebrate communion than when we've been talking about togetherness. Because what is communion? Co-union, right? Community, that's where we get those words. It's this idea of uh, togetherness. So I'm going to pray. And after I pray, if the men that I've asked to help serve will come forward, and then we will partake together and I'll give you some instruction as we follow the Lord's command to observe the Lord's Supper till he returns. Father, we thank you for this uh, reminder from uh, the early days of the church about really what the church is supposed to look like. And we see the church being the church according to what you want them to be. And, and the church is clearly on display. And I pray that we would learn from that. And I pray we'd learn not only as a body, but as individuals in, er in any areas that we may be weak in. And Father, as we talked about this morning, if there's one here who's never taken that initial step of faith and trusted in your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, as the only one who can forgive sin and give the, them eternal life, I pray they would do that today. There is an urgency to the hour. Today is the day of salvation. I pray that they would not turn off this live stream or leave this room without personally placing their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And Lord, for those of us that know the Lord, I pray that this would strengthen our faith, teach us to trust you more, and walk closer with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.